Radio Mano Papachango. up everybody welcome to tangentially speaking i am speaking to you tangentially inside an old car a 2004 toyota hybrid it was the only thing i inherited from my dad when he died <laughs> this beat to shit car he dented all four corners of it uh before he turned in the keys and decided his driving days were over. And I dented the hood when I was out in Death Valley and I decided to stand up on the hood to see the view of something or other and left a permanent dent right in the hood. It's covered in dust and beat to shit, but it's a good car. And I'm in Crestone, Colorado, cruising around. We were uh, camping in Utah. Man, if you have not been to Utah. Holy shit. And November, I guess October, November is the time to be there. Um, I've been through a bunch, um, but it's so hot in the summer. It's hard to find a place where you're not baked because there's not a lot of shade in Utah, but November, man, it's so nice. Uh, Escalante, Boulder, Utah, Height, Utah, where you go over the there's a bridge over the Colorado River. Um, that area is just otherworldly. And right now there's nobody there. It's incredible. Temperatures, 60s, uh, probably 50s now. Last week when we were there, it was in the 60s. Um, nice days, clear, beautiful. Uh, a little chilly at night, you know, it gets down around freezing. But if you got a decent van, you got a sleeping bag, whatever, you'll be okay. And, uh, there's nobody there. The campgrounds are empty, but they're still open, most of them. So it's awesome. Perfect time to be in Utah. Anyway, we were in Utah. We did some hiking, uh, some slot canyons. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw some of those photos. And then a couple of our friends who also have a sprinter van wanted to go to Santa Fe, so we tagged along with them and uh, hung out in Santa Fe, Taos, and then came up to Crestone to visit my buddy, our buddy, Justin. Awesome guy. I've been trying to get Justin on the podcast since I met him. But he's shy. I don't know. Maybe I'll convince him. We'll do it tomorrow. But dude's really interesting. He's from South Africa. He was uh, in the South African Special Forces. He was a tracker in um, Kruger National Park, tracking elephant poachers that come in from Mozambique. You know, lived for a month at a time out in the bush. Um, then he was, uh, he got into deep sea diving and uh, rescue operations. He worked on oil rigs. Uh, awesome guy. He's been all over the world. Spent a lot of time in Zanzibar. The only person I know who's been to Zanzibar. Anyway, uh, this episode is not with Justin because Justin is playing hard to get. This episode is with a guy named Dallas Hartwig. You may know him, uh, you may know his name, cool name, easy to remember. Uh, he's an author. He and his 
partner at the time co-authored a book called The Whole 30 uh, and sort of started this um, movement around a uh, healthy diet and uh, uh, just sort of a holistic approach to health. And um, he's, a, he's a good dude. He's, I think he trained as a nutritionist and um, he's written a couple of other books. And what got me uh, interested in having him on the podcast was he posted something on Instagram that caught my attention. I think someone forwarded it to me. And uh, it was about the the conundrum of masculinity and and uh, just sort of the conundrums of being alive in this day and age where rage is the driving force of our culture and offense and anger seems to be in the air. And uh, he posted something that uh, a long piece of writing that was very thoughtful and kind and comprehensive and and uh so i reposted it with you know attribution and everything i use regran this thing that automatically says reposting from dallas heart week anyway a bunch of people thought that i'd written it and were like chris right on man really well done i was like fuck i didn't even write this uh, anyway, I started checking into his Instagram account and reading some of his other stuff. And he's also a really, really talented photographer. Um, and uh, and I just reached out to him and said, hey, how do you feel about talking about masculinity? Let's, you know, we're a couple of uh, old dudes. Uh, what do we, what have we learned that we might be able to impart to younger dudes and the women who love them or the men who love them? Um and anyway, he was he was happy to do it. We did this uh, over the internet when I was in Guatemala. So if you want to watch the conversation, you can see this on my YouTube channel, uh, Chris Ryan. And um, yeah, I, I really was happy to meet him. He's uh, he's an interesting guy, and he's uh, doing a lot of a lot of thinking. I think he's, he said he was working on a book now, um, involving some of the issues that we covered. So. That's uh, it's present on his mind. He's very well informed. I'm speaking to you, by the way, on a new microphone. This is a new a new gear system that I'm working out. Uh, it's called a Tula mic. And uh, if you do any kind of remote uh, voice work or podcasting, you might want to check this out. Uh, assuming that it doesn't sound like shit <laughs> which i don't think it does uh it sounds good in my headphones right now but anyway it's it's uh, a very interesting innovation in in microphones because the microphone itself has uh i forget if it's six or nine gigs of internal memory and a rechargeable battery and it's about the size of uh, a deck of cards and so rather than taking the Zoom and handheld microphones and mic stands and cables, XLR cables, and an external um, battery to, to power the Zoom, uh, I'm just taking, I just bought a couple of these things and I'm traveling around with these. And so when you do a, a podcast where you're in the room with someone, you each have your own mic and then you just download the audio file from the mic into your computer and that's where you merge them in your garage band or whatever you use and um 
So there are no there are no wires, there are no cables, there's no central recording thing. Everyone just records their own audio file. And uh yeah, it's pretty awesome. And it's probably like a fifth of the size and weight of my normal recording gear. And the reason that's important is I'm about to go international for a while in celebration. I decided I'm going to celebrate my 60th year by just fucking traveling around the world and putting... I've got a book project that I've been flirting with. I've been speaking with agents about it and, and sort of... I've talked about it probably on this podcast. Um, a couple of book ideas, actually, that I'm sort of casually researching and, and thinking about. Uh, and I was going to like start working on that and make a pitch and get into that whole thing again. But I kind of feel like I just want to travel. I just want to live life. I might die next year. Who knows? So do it now, right? Carpe diem. Anyway, I'm turning 60 in February. And... Uh, and I, I just think I want to travel. So we're going to uh, Thailand in a couple of weeks. Um, and we're going to stay in Thailand for a couple of months probably. <clears throat> and then I think in late February, maybe we'll go to Calcutta. I've never been to that part of India. Calcutta, cruise up the Ganges to Varanasi, then go up to Nepal, be in Nepal in March, do some trekking. And uh, and then maybe Turkey, maybe Greece, Spain, Holland, and then back to the U.S. in maybe early June, more or less, and then jump in the van and drive to Alaska and spend the sort of mid-late summer in Alaska, coming back September, October, back down through the Rockies. That's my plan. Don't know if any of it's going to work out. Of course, if, you know, my mom gets sick or my sister or anybody close to me needs me, we'll just drop everything and, and um, you know, that, that trumps whatever plans I've got. But that's my plan. We'll see how it goes. I will be recording podcasts all over the world as I meet interesting people, which one always does. That's one of the best things about travel is the people you meet out there. So... Uh, hope you'll come along on that journey with me. All right, Dallas Hartwig. Check him out on Instagram. Uh, I think it's just at Dallas Hartwig. And uh, I'm going to play you out. I'm going to play two songs. I'm going to play one now, and then I'm going to play uh, a different tune at the end of the podcast. The one I'm going to play now is a classic. It's Tom Petty, Breakdown. Go ahead, give it to me. Break down, honey, take me through the night. It's an expression of masculinity. Of course, it's a very uh, narrow uh, part of the masculinity bandwidth, which is basically desire, which is what tends to get expressed in uh, in music. I swear so much. How much music would exist if these guys were getting laid? I mean, would Tom Petty have even learned to play the guitar? You know, if he were, if he had a girlfriend when he was 15, would he be Tom Petty? You know, same thing with George Harrison. You read interviews with these guys, almost all of them learn to play an instrument in order to hook up with girls. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Like I'm not in favor of sexual frustration, but I love me some rock and roll. 
And then the blues is a whole different thing. My woman up and left me. She left me for another man. You know, it's like, oh, my God, like in country music, you know, you left me with, uh, you know, 20 acres in the field and, and three hungry kids and, you know, Lucille, what are you doing? It's there's just so much tragedy uh, and most of it involves women. So I don't know whether to thank you or curse you, ladies, but uh, you've created a lot of good music or inspired a lot of good music and, of course, created a lot of good music in, in a whole different way. But, like, Chrissy Hind isn't singing about, like, the dudes who dumped her, is she? I guess uh, Janis Joplin certainly was. Uh, I have to think about that. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to play this song, and then I'm going to, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to play another expression of masculinity. This one particularly toxic, I think. Uh, very confusing. It is one of the most the one of the funkiest songs ever i mean it makes this old white dude want to dance every time i hear it i start fucking juking it's called uh the seed 2.0 it's by the roots and as best as i can tell it's basically about a dude who he's i think he might be a pimp and he's talking to a woman about like they're going to make a lot of money together if she like goes along with what he wants to do. And then there's this whole thing about all he wants to do is impregnate another behind his lover's back. And then there's like, I lick the competition cause she don't take no pill. I think it's all about like making women pregnant. Uh, strange, very strange lyrics. But the music is just, you know, incredible. Speaking of incredible music, one last thing before I go. Uh, Rick Beato, our friend Rick Beato, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, music producer, multi-instrumentalist, lover of music, has been scoring some massive interviews recently. He had Peter Frampton on months ago, Pat Metheny, Oh, you know, one of my favorite jazz guitarists, you know, an hour, hour and a half conversation with these guys. Um, Brian May from Queen. And most recently, he just posted a long conversation with Sting and Dominic, somebody whose name I don't remember, who's been Sting's guitarist for 30 years. And it is such a cool conversation. I've, I gotta say, I appreciate the police. I appreciate Sting. He's, you know, definitely an amazing songwriter. But I've always thought he was kind of an arrogant dipshit. Um, I think I read an interview in the '80s when the police were breaking up, or, and he said something like, you know, basically, look, you know, I write the songs. I'm the front man. I sing all the songs. You know. I'll be fine without the police. Who knows what's going to happen to them without me? It was one of those things, which is like, okay, dude, that might be true, but you're still an asshole for saying that in an interview. Um, and I've never, I've, I've always been kind of cold on Sting since then. Uh, although some of his songs are very vulnerable, especially uh, The Soul Cages, which is a record that uh, he wrote uh, the same year that both his parents died. There's some really beautiful um, open-hearted uh, songs on that record. If you don't know it, check it out. Um, anyway, 
this conversation with Rick Beato was cool because Sting, you can see the first 15, 20 minutes, Sting's like, okay, another fucking fan, inner journalist I got to talk to. And then there's this moment, I don't remember what it is. It might have been when Sting was, was talking about a band he put together for a record, like, you know, in the 90s or something. And he's like, okay, it, you know, it was, we had uh, on the drums, we had, um, uh, and then and Rick says Monokache, and he's like, yeah, yeah, Monokache. And then on on bass we had, uh, and Rick's like, oh yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, yeah, that's right, he was on bass. And he kind of looks at Rick like, holy fuck, dude, like you know that band better than I do. You like, how do you know all this? And and then there's another moment where they're talking about a song, and Rick says, you know, you come in on E on the bass, and you do this line, and then the next the next verse where you're everyone would have done exactly the same line you changed it up you come in on e on that and you do a similar line but it's not the same line and sting looks at him like fuck i'm talking to a like a an equal here i'm talking to a peer i'm talking to and you can just see the respect um on his face and it's fucking awesome it's a really cool thing to see and i'm so fucking happy for rick because that dude deserves it. So check that out. It's on YouTube. It's uh, on Rick Beato's Everything Music channel, B-E-A-T-O. Um, yeah, if you like music, Rick is your man. All right. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dallas Hartwig, and I hope that my new Tula microphone sounds okay. I'm going to put these Tulas up on my website. Uh, I've got this a different website, which I always forget to mention called what makes this thing great, uh, which is a takeoff on Rick Beato's, uh, YouTube channel, what makes this song great. And it's where I put stuff that I use regularly stuff for podcasts, stuff for travel. Uh, cause I get a lot of emails from people saying, so what kind of fridge do you have in your van? And what do you think about this? And what, what do you do? So I just put it all up there. Some of the stuff is available on Amazon. So if you click the link on my website, it takes you through and I get that affiliate money from Amazon, which is awesome. Uh, holidays coming up. If you do use Amazon and you're going to be buying stuff from Amazon, it's uh, a great way to support the podcast. Go to my website, click on the Amazon link. It's right there on the homepage. And if you remember to bookmark it and use that as your Amazon uh, link, then anytime you go to Amazon, couple, two, three, four percent of what you spend will get kicked back to support the podcast. And it uh, doesn't affect prices or anything. So um, it's a, a free and easy way to support the podcast. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm going to sign off and go make a quesadilla. Your eyes give you away 
something inside you is feeling like I do. You said all there is to say. I'm speaking with Dallas Hartwig. Thank you for coming on today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, the genesis of this is that you posted something on Instagram uh, that was so thoughtful and well articulated that I just reposted it. And then I started getting all this feedback from people saying, Chris, you've never been, you've never written so well. You've never expressed yourself so clearly. <laughs> and I'm like, bitch, that wasn't me. <laughs> Don't compliment me now. So anyway, congratulations. Uh, somehow you made me look good and bad at the same time there. So well, I was I very complimented by the fact that you reposted it. So we're all winning here. Right. And then I said something like in the repost, I said, I'm aware of the irony. And, and it was because you were part of your post was about like, have your own ideas. Don't just, you know, mimic other people's thoughts, think things through for yourself. And I was like, yeah, I'm aware of the irony of me reposting someone saying <laughs> thing for yourself. And then, but you reached out and you're like, hey, thanks for reposting, but what was the irony? Totally. Just to well, you never quite like, know what people mean, you know? Well, yeah. Well, what did you think? Did you think I was like trying to take the piss out of you somehow? Or? No, not at all. I um, I try. I mean, over the years, I've kind of changed my thinking, but I, I certainly try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And like, I assume <laughs> that like they're not being assholes. Um, and so I was not right. assuming that at all. I just um, wasn't sure if there was some subtlety in some subtle thread through your writing <laughs> that I had missed along the way. No. No, no subtlety, <laughs> nothing. Uh, yeah, well, th that's kind of your thing, right? I mean, I don't think I followed you before that. I think someone must have forwarded that to me or something, hmm. and then I started following you and uh, on Instagram, and uh, I was struck by the beauty of, of the photography. Hmm. The, I mean, you take some awesome photos. Thank you. Um, but also, the, I mean, you put a lot of a lot of thought into your posts and it kind of seems like your Instagram feed is, uh, um, 
I don't know, like like you intend it to be educational and uh, a lot of what you're doing is trying to move people away from the vitriol and uh, victimization and more into generosity and kindness uh, end of the spectrum, uh, which is certainly something needed. Is that an accurate representation? I think it, of what I think it totally doing? is. You know, I think that... Um, you know, growing up in a Christian home, I think that whole idea of like, be a good person is like deeply embedded in my psyche. And I think that still spills out, even though the, um, the religiosity has been, um, leaked out for a long time, but I, I, you know, I have an eight year old son and, um, you know, prior to that, prior to having my boy, whether it made the world better or not, wasn't particularly important to me. Um, I, I paid lip service to it, but now like, it's way more than lip service because I'm like, oh, he has to live in the world that I'm contributing to. So right. there's a much deeper motivation for contribution of something meaningful, something, you know, that, that lasts, something that um, is unifying, something that is healing um, because he has to live in that world. Um, and it breaks my heart to watch the world change as it has in the course of my lifetime because it hasn't gotten markedly better. Yeah, that's putting it generously. Well, right. I mean, this um, is something that you and I both, I was chuckling about this because you and I both um, disagree with uh, Stephen Pinker's assessments of the world. And, you know, like I don't, I didn't get very controversial in my last book, but I did specifically name him and some of my disagreements with his perspective, which of course you did oh. in your last book as well. Um, so yeah, I don't have the sensation that the world is uh, getting brighter and shinier. Um, and yeah. that is sort of the, uh, double reason to, to contribute something, whatever that is that I can. Yeah. Did you, did you think about this stuff before having a child? Was this part of the run up to it or is this kind of your shifting global perspective, an unexpected response to having had a child? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, my my kind of previous career, I um, practiced physical therapy. And so there's sort of a healing um, element to that as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's always kind of been present in the background, like, you know, sort of making the world around me, whether it's my immediate physical vicinity or something larger, better has always been part of it. And then um, with uh, two marriages, both of which ended in divorce, and um, then having my boy, I was like, oh, you know, I should maybe take a closer look at the way I'm showing up because seemingly actually mm. not everything is everyone else's fault. <laughs> um, uh, so then yeah. it, it was, I think having a, I think having, you know, failed relationships, um, and I don't mean failed in the fact that they ended, I mean, failed in the fact that they went badly, um, mm. kind of as a, an unavoidable mirror to your own stuff. And you can look away from it for a while, but sooner or later you're like, well, oh, the same thing keeps happening. Maybe it's me. Right. Um, and then having my boy, I was like, Oh, not only is it me definitively, yes. Um, but also, um, I really, 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 really want to make the world better because I want him to have a different life experience than I had. Yeah. What, what is it that you found in yourself? What, what was the recurring pattern mm -hmm. that jumped out at you? Um, profound selfishness, um, and, uh, inability to, I see what was actually happening for me in relation to other people. Um, certainly and downstream from that, you know, blaming everyone for all of the problems, um, other than myself. Mm. Um, and I think also just, 
um, having a real small mindedness and a really kind of immature adolescent, I guess, adolescent masculine specifically perspective, um, and doing really well in the world in the hierarchical dominating competitive, uh, virtue signaling posturing sense. Um, but missing this whole other range of human experience that I wanted my boy to have, um, that I didn't have in my younger years. Right. But you didn't miss it when you didn't have it. I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. I'd never seen it. You know, I didn't, my dad didn't demonstrate it. Um, I didn't have other kind of older men around me showing that way of being, um, I didn't know that there was that way of existing. And, um, the, you know, the place between let's say 10 or 15 years ago and now has been, um, fraught with banging my head into very hard objects that were immovable and, oh, and then realizing, oh, gotcha. Okay. It's not been like a glorious, smooth, graceful, painless transition for sure. Right. Right. You, so you've got two, is it two books? Uh, I've got three books. I co-authored my first three. two with my ex-wife. Um, those were on right. nutrition and then um, right. published my third on my own uh, last year. Coincidentally, literally the day that the WHO was like, hey, people, we have a pandemic. Um, uh, it wasn't ideal timing for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. My book came, my last book came out, I think, four months before. Mm. And, you know, every time I'm talking to my agent about it, he's like, well, it did pretty good given the fact that COVID hit, you know, it's like, oh yeah, given right. the fact. Right. Um, the qualifier. Yeah. It changed everything. So, you know, you talked about the, something that you were missing and, and that your father didn't model for you and you didn't have other older men around, um, and your own transition from, uh, more of a selfishness and a sort of adolescent uh, sense of masculinity um, toward something different now. Mm-hmm. So, what is masculinity? Is this a is this a big part of the transition? Is this? Do you feel like you're trying to model in your you know your um, attention to kindness and gentleness and all the stuff that we mentioned earlier uh, in your public? utterances. Is this what you're doing? Are you speaking to young men trying to say, Hey, there's a different way to do this. You don't need to bang your head up against these walls that I've been. Uh, yes and no. Um, yes. In the sense that for me, um, becoming a like healthier, more grounded, more integrated man slowly over time, um, means that I do show up differently than I used to, no doubt. I think there's also a piece where um, I don't feel either qualified or even capable of speaking to and and inspiring the kind of teenage or early 20-something men. Um, And I think back to when I was that age, and I actually wasn't looking to uh, 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 year old men, um, for guidance. Cause I thought I already knew everything. Right. Like I was like, Oh, you're like, you're old and washed up. Like that's sort of the youthful, you know, perspective. Right. And so I think I could intend to speak to and write for those young men. Um, but we're really dumb when we're that age. And do you think um, that that's just baked into the cake? That's, that's just testosterone poisoning. Um, I think it is uninitiated masculinity. I think it is the mm. sort of an adolescent bit. So I think mm. that's one of the beautiful things that happens in many primitive cultures is there is a, a pretty forceful reorientation from that 
self-interested, hierarchical, dominating, competitive, immature, and even narcissistic way of being for the, like the young boys and men that really does get like, like forcefully turned in the direction and, and sort of reoriented to something outside of themselves. Right. So there's a reorientation right. to the betterment of the collective of the tribe, but that doesn't right. happen spontaneously. That has to be done to them. It has to come from the outside. That didn't happen for me. So, right. um, it, it took a couple extra decades to incrementally chip away at the things that I wish would have happened when I was 14 or 16. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I I feel like I agree with you that it's it's very there's a an old Navajo expression that I love. You can't awaken someone who's pretending to be asleep. Um and I feel like there are definitely uh people young men who are just unreachable in totally. in many ways. Um but I also feel that there is a huge audience of young men. Audience might be the wrong word. Cohort. Um, cohort, yeah, of young men who are very self-aware and seeking some sort of guidance or older men that they can respect and admire and that seem accessible in mm -hmm. some way, you know, yeah. and, and I think we see that in the Jordan Petersons and the Joe Rogans and like there's there's this sort of pantheon of of dudes that other young guys are sort of looking up to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's true. I think, it's, it's I think many of us have awoken in a dark wood. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. And, you know, I wanted to, to talk with you about that because I feel like, you know, with social media and, you know, the age, I don't know how old you are, but uh, I'm about 43. to turn 60. Right. So we're both old enough to know better, supposedly. Um, it, it's a weird thing because there's an impulse to to offer some sort of comfort or guidance or the benefit of, of one's own experience. But as you were saying, there's also, if you're a healthy person, you're also constantly thinking, I'm not qualified to tell anyone else how to live, right? right. There's like a, without, there's a self-defeating, uh, mechanism somehow where like anyone who actually is worth listening to will immediately say, don't listen to me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. It's like the Buddha said, don't follow me. I'm just a guy, you know, like, right. Oh, that's why you're so interesting. It's, it's a strange thing. How do you manage that? How do you manage being in the public eye and having these people? And you are saying things on your, on your Instagram account that are, you know, it's offering a sort of wisdom. You're saying this, I woke up this morning and had this thought and there's something very universal about the things that you're sharing. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know if I necessarily even know how to answer that. Um, take another, take, phrase that differently for me. Ask the question differently. How do you, how do you deal with the conundrum of offering insights on social media to strangers without falling into the ego traps right. of being a self-proclaimed guru or totally. leader. Totally. I mean, I think there's the, there's the imposter syndrome part of it, you know, which you referenced a second ago, there's the like, you know, um, I don't know all the answers. So therefore don't listen to me. Um, right. but I think there's also just a part that's, 
it's genuine humility in there. And I think of humility so much as just the, the intellectually honest recognition of one's weaknesses. Mm. And um, so I, I don't have to have insecurity and imposter syndrome to still say very clearly and very truthfully, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing in so many spaces in my life. Um, I think also, you know, even in like thinking about writing, whether it's something small, like an Instagram post or, or like a larger book project, I just been like, I follow the, the axiom of like, write the thing that, that I want to read or that I wish I could have read in some point in the past. And so I'm, hmm. you know, in the early stages of working on another book with a co-author, a dear friend of mine, um, Rainier Wild, and we are writing the book that we wish we had 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and just didn't exist. Um, so there's that piece that's kind of in the background for me too, of like, um, write for me, uh, in, at some point in the past or, or write for me in the present. I mean, so much of the stuff now, um, is fairly real time observations and thoughts and realizations that are sometimes small and sometimes big. But, um, I don't, I mean, I don't think about writing for the audience. You know, I don't think about mm. what do they need to hear? What do they need? I'm like, what's happening in my life? And then I'll share something that feels meaningful. So that the actual, right. what the audience needs or what I project upon them, um, is not really part of that equation. Right. Right. That it comes across that way as if you are sharing insights as they occur to you. That's not actually, like that's you're literally what's happening. No, totally. I yeah. mean, many of many times, I mean, my Instagram is not scheduled. It's not daily. It's not playing the game and posting at certain times a day with a certain keywords. Like it's just literally things happen to me and I think about them. And then if I have time, I write about them and then they go, um, mm. it's a really bad strategy for, it's a really bad business strategy, but it feels really authentic for me. Yeah. It, it feels to me like, uh, vulnerability and authenticity are two sort of guiding stars for you at this point in your life. Were for those sure. things that you, were you like covering that stuff up before? Is that part of the transition that you referenced earlier? That's, that's definitely part of it. And I think, you know, like most men in North American culture, um, we read vulnerability as weakness, right? We are, we are vulnerable to, you know, having our social status damaged or to look stupid or, you know, always, you know, the, the, always reminds me of the Margaret Atwood quip, um, men are afraid of women laughing at them. Now, the second part right. of that is women are afraid of men killing them, um, which is always a devastating concept when you sit with that. But the first part of like men are afraid of women laugh, laughing at them. Like that's a big part of the sort of managing vulnerability and looking good and being right that, you know, we're so trained to be. So, um, I think my sort of, I guess, growth or maturation a lot is being okay with not looking good and being okay with getting it wrong and being okay with, um, recognizing like, wow, I really fucked that up before. Like, that's just not the way I should have done it, but I didn't know better. And so there's compassion right alongside that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, vulnerability and authenticity, like that's, those are not, um, you know, uniquely masculine characteristics, of course. I think men are particularly bad at them, largely because we train boys from a really young age to not do those things, right? We punish them. Boys don't cry kind of stuff. Um, we, we demean them. We minimize them for having really human, healthy, emotional experiences. And so with my boy, we just have the experiences we have, and they're all good. Like we normalize all of it. Uh, and that's something that even when he was younger, I didn't do particularly well. And, 
uh, I'm getting better at that bit by bit. What, what do you think are uniquely masculine qualities? Hmm. I'm in, I'm in sort of a weird transition with what masculinity is. And I have a lot of sort of conflicting and even diametrically opposed ideas. Um, I kind of think of, um, masculinity and femininity as, um, imperfect heuristics. They're, they're shorthands for clusters of behaviors and ways of being. And, um, you know, they, they correlate pretty strongly with, um, you know, kind of the primary energies or behavior patterns when you have a really binary gender model. Um, so it's just an easy way to, it's an easy way to talk about things an easy way to describe things. Um, but I'm not so sure that they're, um, specifically, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think of them more as kind of clusters and, and modes of being. So playing that game and just kind of going with it, um, masculinity would be, um, strength and uh, capacity and leadership and structure and courage and discipline and um, ability to do hard things in the face of terror. Um, And so what I think is interesting, and this kind of maybe opens the door to a larger discussion, I, I think the way even what I just said, like that's sort of pulling from some of the like, um, warrior, king, hunter kind of energy, which um, at least in the sort of warrior ethos um, or that kind of mythology is a very young masculine way of being. It's not a mm. broadly masculine way of being over the course of a lifetime. And I mm. think um, I'm quite informed by uh, Gillette and Moore's book, King Warrior, a Magician Lover, um, and kind of mm. the archetypes that they, they talk about. I think they fundamentally got a couple things really wrong, Um in, I think largely goes back to, and I think this will probably resonate with you, um, their archaeological anthropological observations are all based on written records, which are all post-civilization, right? So with archetypes as slowly evolving psychological templates that are buried in all of us, they evolve over extraordinarily long periods of time. So in the same way as, you know, referencing my nutrition work in the same way as we're not well evolved to eat modern processed foods um, or even grain based agricultural diets, um, because it's such a small part of um, our our evolutionary history. The same thing is true on the archetypal timeline. So um, describing masculine archetypes, looking only at uh, the last six or 10 or 12,000 years really is a is a poor data set to pull from to understand what archetypes actually are in us at the deepest level. Mm. So I wholly reject um, King, warrior, magician, lover as an accurate um, archetypal summary of the masculine. Um, I won't say wholly reject, I'll soften that. I think there's parts that need to be kind of understood on a much longer timeline. Right. Um, warrior, so there's a mismatch. Just yeah, as, it's, it's as an said, evolution between our bodies. 100%. Right, right. 100%. So, so what are the deeper, like, what would be the sort of paleo uh, archetypes that, yeah. that you think underlie these things? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we can think about just the, the, the boyhood, right? The, like, you know, um, the pre-adult masculine. They're boys. They're not yet adults. Yeah. There's then sort of the boy to man initiation that is done to them that forcibly separates them from, uh, you know, family, mother and feminine energy and, and just sort of like the belonging there. 
they go through some sort of ritualized death process and they're given a new identity and name and they're taught things. And then they um, go through their own solitary walkabout vision quest experience where they test themselves against the world and they come back largely successful and they are welcomed as a new type of person. Uh, now they are a man, right? So then from that point on, um, I think the, the sequence, as I understand it, is they go into what I think of as a hunter archetype. And I think hunter is a broader range of capacities than just warrior. You know, we, we understand warrior as um, the ability to kind of um, be strong, be protective, um, you know, go to war. But as you and many other people have observed, um, organized warfare was not a primary mode of humans for most of human and even pre-human history. So um, warrior, that sort of archetypal energy, I think is a really narrow subset, um, a sort of like um, de-skilling of the larger hunter archetype, which is right. the ability to be in the world and be competent and confident and uh, courageous and disciplined and um, to provide, right? Like that's the primary right. thing. And if needed, rise to the occasion of something that requires, you know, physical violent protection, whether it's a predator or whether it's actually another human that's, you know, threatening your life. But the warfare part of that is a, is a very narrow subset. And so the, the hunter right. is kind of that, that young masculine way of doing it. Um, and for the most part, that's where uh, most, the vast, vast majority of men in, civil, in the civilized world get stuck somewhere between uninitiated boys and narrow, um, poorly functioning hunter warriors. Um, and I think from there, there's like this whole other place you can go. You go into the, um, well, I'll say the, the hunter space is a mastery of the physical world, body, right. providing, protecting, procreating, um, but it's the outside world. And then there's the space where we realize that actually being uh, strong and dominating and forceful and all of that actually can't solve all the problems. And we have to be like, oh, there's this thing inside me that I actually need to get to know the inner world. And that's the right. sort of magician, shaman, philosopher, alchemist kind of space. Um, I don't know what the perfect word is there, but they use magician. Keep to let more use magician. Uh, but that's that I think of as the mastery of the inner world. And that's what happens, you know, kind of in somewhere between mid twenties and forties, um, for men, depending on what their experience is. And they're like, Oh, I don't know anything that's inside of me because I've never looked at it and no one's ever encouraged me to be aware of it or value it. And so all of the things then of, um, self-awareness and meditation and, um, and shadow work and all these different kind of ways of, of accessing that space. And then once you've kind of known and understood and mastered the outer world and the inner world, then you have a, a fully intact person, a fully intact right. man, you know, like an actual, like filled up self that you can then bring into relationship with, um, romantic partners, children, um, extended family community and the world at large. And that's the lover energy. Right. You have this relational or sort of horizontal way of connecting with them. And that's the lover stuff. And I think about the comments you hear often in couples who have been together for, you know, several decades. They're like, this is the best relationship, the best sex we've ever had in their, in their fifties or sixties. And I think that's a function of slow maturation into that lover space. And then in the 
Gillette Moore's model, you would become sort of this benevolent king, you know, in that kind of that good space. And I think, again, the problem I have with that is that it's, it's hierarchical and it's civilizational. Um, right. Even if you're a good king, you're still sitting at the top of the heap. And I'm like, actually, yeah. no, I think about that, um, that beautiful final stage as an elder space. Right. Um, and that is uh, cooperative and collaborative and they are keepers of wisdom and they are intergenerational bridges. And I think the intergenerational bridges is something that's completely lost in the way the modern world operates. And it doesn't, it, there isn't the emphasis on that in the sort of um, king model. Like when the king dies, the king dies, but the, the council of elders um, can be the, the bridges from ancestors and past and also advocates for a better future. And so, I mean, I'm 43, but I'm thinking about becoming an elder in the second half of my life. And so anything that drives me in that space is in the service of being able to give everything that I could possibly give um, by the end of my life, not just to this time period, but to my son's generation and many beyond that. Um, yeah. So that's the kind of, that's how I see the archetypal layout. Right. Yeah. I often think about how tragic it is that the, the sort of accumulated wisdom of the elders is rightly or wrongly considered to be irrelevant um, because the world is changing so fast. Right. Right. Well, like, I think also just especially, I don't know if especially, but including men, because the economic realities of the last certainly decades, if not a couple centuries, um, have um, taken up the vast majority of a man's waking hours. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot less natural maturation for men as they get older. And mm -hmm. so I think we have a whole generation and we talk about patriarchy or toxic masculinity. I think that's really, that's a, um, that's a stagnant putrefied arrested development of mm. the young masculine. Um, so we think we have yeah. 70 year old men who are actually not elders. They're elderly. <laughs> and I think that's an important that's distinction, right? Cause they haven't gone good. through all of those integration. Maturation. They're not Jews. They're Jewish. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fine. It's a good, I like that distinction. Uh, and another aspect of that, that occurred to me while you were speaking, you know, in the, the sort of distinction between hunter and warrior, um, you know, they, kind of look the same from outside. They're both mm -hmm. armed, mm -hmm. you know, they're both, uh, very capable, capable and keyed into their surroundings and facing certain kinds of danger and fulfilling, uh, a pro social function, at mm -hmm. least in theory, um, you know, protecting the homeland or whatever it is. Um, but a major difference between them is that the hunter is autonomous. Mm -hmm. And the soldier is taught obedience, mm -hmm. you know, and I wonder how that ties into maturation because doing what you're told is not a really good place to be as a grown man. No, not at all. I mean, that's, I think where, um, and I'll use kind of military organized, large scale military structures. Um, they're still quite adolescent in their strongly hierarchical, um, mode. Right. 
Um, and so, you know, you don't have encouragement um, towards, you know, making good decisions. The, we, we, you know, the Western modern militaries are made up of young men who can absolutely be told what to do because they haven't yet learned how to totally think for themselves. And so by the time they're, um, you know, 40 or 50, they're really bad at doing what they're told. And they're also not that valuable to the military, not just because their physical capacity is not what it was when they were 22, um, but because they're actually much harder to bully into doing what they're told in a kind of mindless way. Right. Um, I, I think you make an important point there um, with the kind of the distinction between hunter and warrior. I think also, I mean, hunter as like a really, as a much older mode of being, um, hunter exists in the archetypal sense in small tribal groups. So as an individual, you're actually very valuable as an individual. You might be one of a couple dozen, you know, young men in that kind of hunter or if necessary warrior space. Um, but you don't have, they're not, you're, you're not an unlimited resource. And so being a, a hero in seek of, uh, you know, um, in the pursuit of personal glory is actually a really dumb way to be and doesn't serve the tribe as it, from a survival mechanism and survival standpoint. But when you have the explosion of population and urbanization post agricultural revolution and all of that, all of a sudden you've got standing armies of thousands or tens of thousands of men and you're completely dispensable. Right. Um, and I think that's the, one of the, one of the important distinctions is that you can be told what to do because you're just a unit. Like you're just a, you're just a thing. You're just a, a widget. Um, you're not a human anymore. And so there's a real, dehumanization that takes place in that um, shift from, to your point, uh, a hunter with sovereignty over his body and his life. Um, and that's stripped away when you become a military unit. Yeah. 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 I mean, think about a hunter. The, the more you can feel, the better hunter you're going to be. Mm -hmm. The more refined your senses are. And, you know, and yet uh, the military service is basically about teaching you not to feel. Right. Dehumanizing the enemy. Don't think about what you're doing. Don't think about the innocence. Don't right. think about the geopolitical implications of this. Just do what you're told. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a strange world. What is this your new book? I, I don't know if how comfortable you are talking about it. That's always a uh, a bit of an issue for me talking about books in progress. Right. But is there anything like, is this the sort of stuff that you're writing about or is it another nutrition? Yeah, book no, this is definitely the sort of stuff that I'm writing about. Um, you know, I've did, you know, having done two books on food specifically, and then the third book on kind of mostly physical health, um, you know, in a broad sense, I'm really bored of talking about that stuff. You know, my undergraduate <laughs> degrees in anatomy and physiology, like I came from right. that world and I'm right. like, okay, cool. I've been in that for literally 20 years. And now I'm like, okay, there's far more interesting things farther up Maslow's hierarchy to like, let's talk <laughs> about some more interesting stuff other than like how to make your body healthy. Um, yeah. So it's Dude, like, I'm tired of talking about sex. So I, I bet. I <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, this is, this is the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about and have been for the past um, several years and, and will be writing about. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a weird pivot too to say to my literary agent, like, Hey, I know I'm known for writing about, you know, food, but I'm actually going to write about masculine psychology and archetypes and development and attachment theory. Mm -hmm. And she's like, huh, how am I going to talk to publishers about that? I'm like, well, that's your job. You figure that out. Um, right. But yeah. Right. Um, 
Do you feel like, I mean, I know personally you feel, you know, as you just said, you've sort of done your time in the fields of nutrition and, and anatomy and physiology and so on. Um, but do you also get the sense, as I do, that that's kind of played out a little bit? I mean, I know there's lots of new information. There's always research going. But I kind of feel like the basic scenario that, you know, we evolved in a certain environment, eating and and moving and, you know, sort of sleeping in a certain way, uh-huh. not a specific way, but, you know, we have a general sense. Um, and that's an accurate guide to what's going to work for us. Uh-huh. Like, I kind of feel like that's been established at this point. There's still people arguing it, but... Uh, <laughs> It feels like that tide has come in. Right? No, I totally agree with that. And I think, um, you know, I, I think about food and, or, you know, I think about actually I'll, I'll pick on biohacking actually as a thing because, um, you know, I don't find it to be a particularly engaging, interesting thing to do. Um, I think it, it often we get mired down in some of those minutiae in the very physical realm and occasionally in the psychological mm-hmm. realm. But for the most part, we get we're going you know, to fine tuning things. I'm like, yeah, but if you look at, you know, this kind of, again, Maslow's hierarchy of interesting things we could do in our lifetime, you're spending all of your time in the most rudimentary, lowest level stuff. And I'm like, what about all this other beautiful stuff? And so that's what yeah. I'm actually interested in. Uh, so I agree yeah. with you. Like we've, we, we have, we have all of the solid principles that are effective for virtually everyone in their broad application, you know, in the kind of in a broad sense. And yeah, you can personalize it and you should personalize it to an extent, but, uh, we, we, we have it, we, the good enough, like we have the good enough established, um, right. and right. let's then notice that and use that as an opportunity to like move forward as opposed to like drilling down further into the space that is already good enough. Right. Yeah. It's almost like a, a, uh, uh, corollary to like the pickup artist world. It's like, why are you spending so much time learning how to pick someone up and no time at all learning how to relate with them right. once you have, right? You know, it's like, okay, your abs, your, your body fat content is down to half a percentage point, but you're still unhappy, man. Right. You know, totally. like it, it's not about that. It, it's yeah. I, I almost feel like that stuff is, how to say this it's it's like there are these these conundrums uh around to me a part of masculinity is not honing your physical presence um to the point where you're looking at yourself in mirrors half of every day it's moving beyond that concern it's it's moving beyond that issue Totally. So that your sense of self-worth isn't about your abs or your biceps or your, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of feels like a lot of the struggle with masculinity these days, it, there's a feminine, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like there's a feminization of masculinity mm. and a masculinization of femininity. There, there. There, I don't know if you I've, know what I've, I'm talking about. I know about. exactly what you're talking about. I actually, I've said something similar, but more rooted in the sort of physiological realm. And when I was um, doing functional medicine practice and education in that space, I would often say to people, chronic stress feminizes men and masculinizes women. 
Oh, interesting. So you mean so, that on a on a chemical level or, a, or just yeah, behaviorally? No, on a on a chemical level. Um, the way uh, our steroid hormone pathways respond to chronic stress skews the hormone profiles. I'm speaking in broad terms here, but skews the hormone right. profiles of um, biologically, you know, biological men and biological women in opposite directions, and you see really commonly. Um, the behavior patterns follow that. Um, you see body shapes follow that. You see what people, the way they show up in their work environments and family environments follow that. Um, and then you can play that out over, um, you know, a, a societal on a societal level. And I think about, um, you know, the sort of resurgence of some of the trying to like, figure out what masculinity is. And, you know, you mentioned Jordan, Jordan Peterson. I think he's part of that. Um, and I think that's in a, in a way, an attempt to kind of hold on to that traditional way of thinking about masculinity as it's becoming a little bit feminized over the past several decades. Um, so I agree with you on that. And I think I'm just saying there's, I think there's a, a civilizational chronic stress underpinning to that that shows up in behavior. Right. Right. And do you, do you think there that, that culture is also uh, doing this? I mean, I know I, I never thought about it from a chemical perspective uh, in terms of chronic stress, although I do think chronic stress underlies just about everything. For sure. Um, all disease processes. And um, but it also feels like young men are being told that strength and uh, leadership and courage, these things are being devalued culturally. Mm -hmm. And young girls are being told, you need to take charge, you need to like get a job, you need to take care of yourself. And you know, don't don't look for a man to mm -hmm. you know, do it on your own. A, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, you know, right. like that kind of stuff. It, it kind of feels like what you're describing hormonally is also being encouraged culturally for some reason. I think that's true. And, you know, I think back um, to mid 20th century and um, some of the rise of, uh, of feminism. And I think I have a bit of a, a, a dark, perhaps cynical view of what's happened from then till now. And um, thinking about it from a, a sort of capitalist and patriarchal through that lens, um, I think, to a certain extent, the kind of the, the larger system there realized that like women were actually like they'd had enough. They were not going to do this thing anymore the way it had been done. And I think perversely and ironically um, kind of economically swallowed up and kind of usurped some of that space that um, it's not just now that women can, you know, work and get an education and be independent. It's also now that they have to. So they became yeah. economic units the way men have always become economic units. So there's sort of a, again, a, a, a tragic and perverse swallowing up that went on there. So yes, obviously it's better for women to have that option. I don't think it's better for everyone to be um, permanently, perpetually, exhaustingly beholden to those economic current realities. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, but what do you think about the, the interrelation, though, between men and women? Do you think that there is an essential confusion or, or frustration because there is some sort of, you know, archetypal or biological or you know, like wherever we're going to locate it, but some kind of eternal 
masculine that men are not embodying and there's an eternal feminine that you know and and you know we should have the caveat of course we're talking about generalizations and and there's you know feminine energy in men and masculine energy in women and that's all um that's all great and and part of the natural order of things but it does i often when i'm talking with young women i often find there's a lot of frustration in women in their 20s and 30s that the men their age are ashamed of being men mm-hmm. and, and don't know how to do it. Right. And so the women are like, will you fucking man up, up, like yeah. take control, like drive, take the car, do, you know, make a decision. Why am I, you know, I don't want to be involved right. in every decision. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, um, I actually have a, actually have a, a kind of a, 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 a metaphor for why that is. Um, Cause I totally agree with you. I think about um, men and women in the, um, sort of societal level or cultural level um, maturation, sort of the, the the rolling mean of where men are versus where men women are, and uh, I don't think too many people would disagree that women generally are, on average, individually and culturally more mature, more emotionally competent um, than the average man. And I don't know how long that's been true for, but it's certainly true now, as I see it. And I think back to, and let's go back to mid 20th century. Um, I think what happened there in a a sort of metaphorical sense was um, an older, wiser, more mature woman, let's say a mother, looked at her uh, adolescent son who was being a shithead and was like, hey, knock that off. I'm not going to stand for that behavior anymore. So there was this sort of sharp, well-deserved rebuke of the masculine behavior, the, the toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, all of that stuff. Because again, that's that's adolescent masculine behavior. That's uninitiated boy behavior. Mm. And um, I think about when I was, you know, fourteen or something, and if my mom grabbed me by the ear and was like, "Hey, you fucking stop that." There's kind of two options available to me as an uninitiated boy at that place. There's two kind of, you know, general responses. I can get soft and tearful and apologetic and regressive um, and much more childlike, much smaller. Or I can puff my chest and argue and get defensive and justify things and basically just be kind of angry and, and defensive and uh, mutter under my breath about how shitty she is and stomp up the stairs and kick a hole in the wall upstairs. And I think those two modes of like um, shrinking back and becoming regressive, I think looked like soft, spiritual, spineless man of the seventies and to a certain extent of the todays or the kind of driven underground, angry, defensive, I guess you could say masculinity, but like immature masculinity um, that I think has been kind of simmering and continues to show up as toxic masculinity. And I think what's worth noting there is that neither of those um, ways of responding to an appropriate confrontation or an appropriate rebuke are adult ways of being. Those are child mm-hmm. ways of being. And so when men are the vast majority are uninitiated, they're going to respond usually in one of those two ways. And I think men today don't recognize that the um, way of dealing with what women want from them is not a midpoint between two different adolescent or childlike responses is actually a third way, which is the adult way, which is like, Oh, I need to take responsibility for what I did. I need to like acknowledge it. I need to apologize for it. 
Uh, I need to make amends if and when possible. And I need to make a plan to not do it again the same way. Like that's what an adult would do when confronted with something they'd kind of gotten wrong. And I think that's what men in general need to do um, on a, like on a huge scale. But most men sort of do one of those other two more either regressive childlike ways or angry defensive ways. And I wonder to what extent those two options are constrained by the fact that the boy is responding to the mother. Right. Right. If it were the father or other adult men who took the boy aside and said, hey, come here, mm-hmm. I want to tell you something. That's not how you talk to a woman. Mm-hmm. That's not, you know, how we behave. Then there, there's a different there are different options Absolutely. available. Well, right? and that's and that's like the, the the elder males in a tribe taking the boy aside and initiating the hell out of him. Right. And like you sometimes are really like terrifying, um, overwhelming way. But it's, it's quite forceful. It's like there's no bullshit. There's no like there's a really strong structural container there for like this is what's tolerated and this is what isn't like you better get back into line. Um, but also there's an honor in it. hundred percent. Because, you know, a, a boy wants nothing so much as to be respected by men. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So there's a conflict with the women, with the mother, because, as you say, I think the, the energy is the the young boy is very aligned with his mother and that mm-hmm. that feminine world of safety and nurturance and, and all that. And then and then there's like sort of a, a natural differentiation from the mother. But in the current world, it feels like it's not merging then into the masculine. It's right. just it's just going out into nothingness. Right. Well, I think and it's so. A, it, it's ahead. sort of like an incomplete differentiation. Right. Right. Because biologically, behaviorally, boys do something different and become something different than their mothers, but they don't actually have a new um, societal space to go to where there is some instruction right. about how to do an entirely different thing, right? Right. You know, Robert Bly talks so much about the absent father, and that's that's the story of industrialized, you know, labor-driven economic units, a.k.a. men. Um, they're just not there. And they're just not right. there in part because they're occupied with, uh, you know, providing. They're also just not there because their fathers weren't there and their fathers weren't there and their fathers weren't there. And no one right. has any fucking idea how to be that um, presence for the younger generation. And so there's this sort of this like, you know, men are adrift because there's no older um, sort of beacon or, or kind of guiding light um, of like what it what you could or should turn into as you get older. And there's no forceful um, initiation of like, hey, you have to do a dramatically different thing here. And I think some of the hyper-individualism of capitalist society is reflective of the fact that we have those highly individualist, differentiating adolescents running around everywhere. And we don't have them move from like, dependent child to independent adolescent back into an interdependent adult. And we just don't move from from independent adolescent to interdependent adult. And we everyone's right. atomized. Everyone's isolated. Right. And I, and I feel like a lot of uh, the anger against women, uh, you know, the whole incel movement, the mass shootings, the mm-hmm. pickup artist world that, you know, we trick women they can feel bad about themselves as a way to get them, you know, like right. a lot of that energy 
is an expression of that of what you're saying of that sort of arrested development phase of I'm differentiating myself from the feminine on the way to becoming masculine, mm-hmm. but but they're stuck there in they're that stuck. like That's I'm right. not it's, a woman, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm against women. Like, yeah. no, dude, you got to continue on until you circle back around and love women, right. but not from a place of fear. Right. Well, I think even this whole concept of, um, you know, large scale sort of almost systematized tension between men and women and the whole like battle of the sexes kind of um, story yeah. is a function of operating from that independent, that independent differentiating adolescent space. Right. Because both, I mean, every human goes, goes through that process and when you're trying to differentiate, it's not so much that you know who you are. You're just trying to prove who you're not. You're pushing away. You're trying to escape the gravitational field of the family of origin. So you're Good just trying to, to be like, it. I'm not that right. I'm something right. else. I don't know what it it's is yet. Ant- I've, it's something else. It's anti. It's right. not pro. Right. Yeah. And so then at some point, and I think about this, um, physics is kind of my way of being in the world. And so if you think about it, if like a, like a planet, like a, like an orbiting body, like, you know, um, you start on earth in a dependent on the earth kind of way. And you can through, um, maturation, push yourself outside of the gravitational field out, you know, to get away from the orbit of, and being kind of stuck with the family of origin, where you, where you come from, and you can break free of that orbit. You can differentiate, you can become truly independent. But unless something, some other external force acts on you at that point, there's nothing to pull you back into a stable orbit around Mm. that. And I think that's the function of the masculine initiation is to be that external force to say, hey, you actually can't stay in this totally independent space. You actually have to come back into relationship to the community, the tribe, the collective. Um, But that has to be done to you from the outside. And that virtually never happens in the society. And I, I'm scheming ways to do that for my boy as he gets older. Um, unfortunately, I've got a few years to figure out how to do that. Um, but that's like high in my priority list as a father. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I can, that metaphor really works because you can see some guys that, that never get off the launch pad, you know, failure to launch. They're all over the place living in mom's basement and, you know. Uh, and then you got the other guys who launch, but then drift off into space. And yep. as you say, never, they never find that stable orbit. Well, and I think yeah. the point, you know, there is that, yes, they drift off into space alone. Like they perish alone. Right. Um, we, we don't, we don't exist well as individual humans, you know, in the, in the really broad sense. And so if we aren't pulled into a stable orbit where we interrelate with the place we came from and the community and the collective. Um, but we are still actually our own sovereign, um, creatures. Uh, there's a whole, a whole universe full of drifting, independent, uninitiated men. Um, and my call here is to, for those of us who recognize that problem is to find ways to like, you know, tooth and claw, fight your way to find a way to become something remotely approximating an elder so that as the generations go by, we can pass some small fragments of wisdom down and over the course of many generations, try to get some of that, um, initiatory, 
um, process inserted back into normal culture instead of it being really aberrant. Yeah. So sort of looking at this through the lens of your previous work in nutrition and, uh, and health, you might say, okay, uh, you know, the, obviously the industrial agricultural food system is totally unhealthy, unhealthy for individuals, mm -hmm. unhealthy for the planet, unhealthy for everybody. So you got to find a different way. And one mm -hmm. of the ways could be, uh, you know, farmers markets, you, you get to know your local farmers, you try to you know eat what's in season and, and eat what works for your microbiome and acknowledge yourself as part of the ecosystem and all this kind of stuff. Is there an equivalent to this, do you think, in terms of this masculine education and dealing with women? Is there a way to get back to the land, I guess? Yeah. In this sense, can we build communities in which these sorts of teachings and initiations start from the ground up? Or is this about writing books and, and online stuff, do you think? I don't know yet, is the short answer. Um, I've looked... For just for purely personal reasons, I've looked for those answers, those communities, those paradigms, and have found them to be virtually not present. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm in some ways encouraged by kind of the rise of you know men's groups, men's work in recent years, um, and I think there's I think it's appropriate in some cases and not in others um, because the camaraderie of brothers, kind of that sort of um, dynamic is fine in the like bunch of uh, teenage buddies kind of way, a fairly young, immature way. And it's also fine in the like, um, we are becoming adult male initiated, um, integrated hunters kind of way. Like we will, we will stand shoulder to shoulder against something that's threatening and we'll do work in the service of the collective. But then what's apparent to me, and this is a, less of a problem because there's just not a ton of men who are going into this space, but there is a space there where um, you kind of have to do it on your own. Like sort of being this student philosopher, alchemist in the laboratory at night by yourself, falling into the abyss, um, you know, and, and like that's solitary work. So I think that's just an important recognition, too, that the men's groups and the men's work is really, really helpful in that particular developmental stage and that, in that archetypal energy. And, um, in order to get to know your inner world, you have to be by yourself. And like that's solitary work, not unsupported work, not, um, completely isolated work, but it's not the band of brothers dynamic that occurs in a lot of the men's groups. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And where do women fit into this? Is there a role for women in this? maturation or is it sort of do you think it's something where the boys separate from the world of women into the world of men and then return transformed i don't i don't entirely know um i think in the space between when the when the boy um kind of gets kidnapped away from mother and village and tribe like i think there's a space where he has to be fully kind of separated um, energetically mm. Um, and then there's also the space where he does get to come back as a man, right. And be welcomed by everyone in the village, including women. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful, um, and, and important process. And, you know, I think to, 
um, what happened. And we look at mental health outcomes for soldiers who fought in World War II and contrast that with soldiers who American soldiers who fought in Vietnam. And, right. you know, when you come home from World War II, you have fought this axis of evil and conquered it. And there's so much gratitude and there's so much like everyone came together. Um, and there was, you know, um, way there was there was a, a way paved for you through GI bills and things like that. Like there was a place to come back to. And yeah. when you come back and when you came back from Vietnam, people spat in your face. There was no coming back to the tribe and being accepted and there being an expression of gratitude and recognition. It was actually like. Uh, explicit rejection there. And I think yeah. that, um, with the stress of war being, a, an incomplete, imperfect kind of initiation, um, coming back and being fully rejected is a, is a profoundly wounding experience for young men. And I think that's one of the largest reasons why the mm -hmm. mental health and addiction problems in the, you know, men who fought in Vietnam is like the rates are tragic to say the least. Yeah. yeah. So that's true. I think, I mean, I've had, um, you know, friends and, and, um, just women in general say like, well, like, like, what do I do? Like, I, like, I want to support this. Like, what do I do? And, um, <laughs> one of my like flippant answers is like, be patient, um, which know what he likes. Um, but I think there are more and more men awakening to the fact that like the way, the way things have been is, is not okay. And you know, the men who are, super toxically masculine, which again, is just sort of the immature, uninitiated, stagnant, um, masculine there. They might not admit that like things aren't okay. They're like, yeah, things are working totally fine for me. But there's a lot of us who are like, ah, it actually isn't okay. And we recognize it not just because men are behaving badly in the world, but because it actually doesn't feel good for us as individuals mm. when we can actually have that experience and like, oh, I've had the a profoundly impoverished emotional experience for most of my life. And we can really like recognize that we're like, Oh, it actually doesn't feel okay. There's more and more men waking up to that. And I think, um, right. men are trying to find their way. My, you know, kind of thinking and writing and, and upcoming, um, book eventually will be, a, a, an attempt to contribute to that process, um, on a large scale. Um, and what that means is, uh, the, older and perhaps more importantly, more mature women are who are like desperate for men to kind of really stand up and behave in that adult way instead of either the defensive adolescent or the regressive child way um, are, are going to have to give us a minute where they're just going to have to be patient um, and they can encourage it. They can encourage that behavior when they see it, yeah. um, which of course is still fairly rare. Um, men will, I mean, humans, but men will certainly change behavior when they find it to be rewarding or rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really rewarding men who are doing that maturational process with, um, and, and learning to respect and honor and value those behaviors ahead of the dominate warrior alpha kind of more traditional and, um, and civilizational ways. Like, Men will change when, um, when the opportunity and the reward is there, it just hasn't been there very much because even, I mean, I think I hear a lot from women who are like, well, I actually want a man to, you know, be emotionally sensitive and to be self-aware and to be kind of doing his own work without me having to like prod him into doing it. And they also went, want men to be more of the 
stereotypically masculine um, role. And men are like, I, I can't actually do all of it all at the same time. Um, so but there's definitely. To, so, sorry, I was going to say, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that um, young women should be uh, attracted to older men, that that's the way this is going to work out. <laughs> Because then the young should, men will but, see, but probably are right. Um, <laughs> but then the young men will see, like, now why is she into that guy? Like that old right. dude. It's like because he's fucking grown up. That's why. Right. So and not and not because work. he's rich. Right. This is that. This is the yeah. differentiation because the, the the model now is young woman with older guy. It's because he's he has status. He has power. He has money. Right. Um, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking no. about um, a man who might be in that sort of integrated. Um, you know, he's gone past just the, you know, um, sticking in the, um, the hunter warrior physical domain. He's gone past perhaps even the, um, shaman, magician, alchemist, philosopher, student space. And he's gone into the place where he now has a full self and he's in that lover space. And, um, that's the, that's the mature grown up adult man that, um, I, I do think that some women find profoundly attractive. Um, there's just not a ton of those either. Thank God. (laughs) We're all going there. (laughs) I'm already there, dude. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Uh, listen, before we start, start saying things we shouldn't, uh, (laughs) thank you, Dallas. This has been great. I enjoy this. Uh, I hope you'll come back and we can talk, uh, more about this when, when your book's ready to launch. I would love that. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. This is, uh, these are good conversations and I hope to have more of them. Game.
fool Matter of fact, I've been keeping it cool Since money been changing hands and I'm wrecked to shine The legacy I leave behind Be the seed that'll keep the flame I don't ask for much, but enough room to spread these wings In a world finna know my name I man, don't Push my seat so 